Toronto Blue Jays. Still in the weekend. NFL football, who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Move over. Football? Yeah. Actually, I will say, football yesterday was ass. Yeah, it was bad. Like, it was just rain, sludge, sleet, whatever. You could kind of tell looking at the slate that it wasn't oh. going to be the best. Although I will say, one of my favorite things about football, like you were talking yeah. about the rain, I love that any weather is football weather. It's uh-huh. like sunny and warm. They'll be like, ooh, this is football weather. It's cold yeah. and snowy. You know what that is? That's football weather. Yeah, you know what, though? You take that weather and you combine it with some quarterbacks of those guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, Not a match made in heaven. That's yeah. fair. Fair. Yeah, was, the Steelers game was nuts. I had to keep delaying it, which yeah. is the only part of my Cowards Parlay that got shattered. So uh, that one sucked. Um, but their first half, just an absolute yeah. nightmare. And I, I was trying to pay attention to it. And what did we get? We got like nothing. Nope. Uh, we get nothing. And it just shows up at the end of the game. I was like, oh, this game's over. This game <laughs> is done. I guess. I guess the Steelers lost. Okay. So, anyway, we're uh, we're gonna talk to Shai Davidi down at the MLB Winter Meetings, who uh, must be a bit of a rock star. Gotta say, this is the thing, Toronto Blue Jays. They're absorbing this news of yeah, we've been getting rumors from just about every single person on the planet right now. Yeah, it's like you want to get tweets, you want retweets. You want interaction. You want people to know who you are as an insider. You want people to be discussing, hey, how credible is this person? Do anything on the Toronto Blue Jays right now. Hot, hot, hot topics of conversation. So basically, as of right now, there are reports, multiple reports of from the weekend that the Jays are front runners for Juan Soto. Mm -hmm. The Jays still in on Shohei Otani. Mm -hmm. The Jays entertaining trade offers for Alec Manoa. Mm-hmm. They're in on everybody. So, yeah, let's talk to a rock star that's down there. Uh, Shai Davidi of Sportsnet. So, yeah, what, what's it like? Everybody's coming up to you, you, Ben Nicholson-Smith, anybody that's Toronto adjacent and just wants all the buzz, huh? Uh, sort of. It uh, was pretty funny. Ben and I were talking to uh, an agent yesterday. Yeah. And uh, a Blue Jay fan walked by. Is like, so guys, Shohei, Shohei, yeah, yeah, so Shohei. Yeah, you guys and, are uh, basically the, Shohei. <laughs> and the, the agent started laughing, and I uh, said, so that's what it's like in Toronto right now? I said, yeah, that's what it's like in Toronto right now. So uh, it's it's definitely an interesting time. It's December 4th. Um, the Leafs are playing. They played the Bruins this weekend. The Raptors are doing whatever it is that they're doing, kind of like sitting around 500 and boring everybody to death. Uh, and the NFL just had a Sunday slate where we had the two biggest teams in football, and I don't think anybody cares about any of this stuff. They just want to know about Toronto Blue Jays, the rumors, and when they're going to sign somebody. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I didn't know, I guess fans go to this thing? I'm not sure if they go to this thing, but it's at this, uh, especially here in Nashville, it's like at a massive resort where there are tons of people just having vacations and stuff like that, too. So, you know, I don't think that was someone who was necessarily here for the meeting. They were just here and okay, coincided okay. with that. Okay. Um, 
but yeah, there there are a lot of people who just come. Uh, there are a lot of job seekers who come to these things too, okay. trying to get into the industry. So it's uh, it's a, a humongous gathering. I, I can't understate every year how many people come to this thing. Okay, so um, let's get into it. There were just the reason why you guys are rock stars is because it's not even just Shohei Otani at this point. But Hector Gomez reporting the Jays are quote front runners in the Juan Soto sweepstakes. What is your understanding of the Jays' interest? Uh, look, they're, they're involved. Uh, to say front runners, I don't know. I mean, you know, Ben and I had one person come up to us yesterday. He goes, you know, if the if the Padres are going to keep asking these prices, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Blue Jays might end up being the only team in on there, but. Who knows? Uh, I, I don't think the Blue Jays are going to empty their farm system for one year of Juan Soto. And, you know, if the, some of the reporting that we've seen on what the trade talks are like yeah. between the Padres and the Yankees, you know, at that price, I can't see the Blue Jays or really any other team doing that. So the part of what's at play there is that the Padres are going to the Padres are facing their own pressures, right? So they're trying to clearly move some money so they can do some other things. And at a certain point, they're going to have to move, move the money to, in order to, to accomplish their plan. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you can't keep holding on for a return forever because if you try to wait the market out and wait for other teams' desperations, your window of opportunity could pass. So I, I think if... Shohei Otani does not work out for the Blue Jays and Juan Soto is still in play and the price is reasonable, then at that point, the Blue Jays get involved. But I can't see the Blue Jays giving up multiple pieces for Shohei Otani, at least at the current level that's being reported on. Okay, because, yeah, uh, Heyman has it as the Padres asked for Michael King, their top pitching prospect, Drew Thorpe, and a package of other prospects, like a six-player deal. And so if you're trying to translate that into Blue Jays' terms, it's like Manoa plus Tiedemann plus, you know, whatever else that they have in a pretty limited farm system. Like I had Kylie McDaniel on the show last week. He said that when you remove Tiedemann from the Jays' farm system, he's got them about 25th in baseball or even lower. So, yeah, these guys aren't exactly chock full. I just wonder if this is more of a... Like, do, do you... I don't know if you how closely you follow basketball or if at all, but do you remember when the James Harden trade first gets announced or anything? It's uh, Daryl Morey loves to float it to the media like this is what we want return, and it's like eighty different guys, eighty different draft picks, and everybody immediately looks at it and goes, "Okay, that's clearly not the price." But what is the actual price? The question is, I, I think, is if the Jays are doing a Juan Soto trade, does that mean that they would involve Ricky Tiedemann? It, they may have to. I would think it, you, you know, like you're not getting Juan Soto for nothing. Yeah. Uh, the the thing that's interesting to me, I, I, I see kind of, uh, or saw some of the speculation that Alec Manoa would have to go back. Like, yeah. You know, I don't think the Blue Jays are, the Blue Jays are going to value Alec Manoa at or similar to the 2022 level. And if a team wants Alec Manoa, they're going to have to be in that range as opposed to trying to value him based off of last year. Mm-hmm. And so you're not trading a pitcher who was a Cy Young Award, Ken, uh, Cy Young Award finalist with three years of club control for one year of Juan Soto. So like in a package like that, I'd expect there to be something back. Like I would guess, I don't know this, this is just my speculation, but if the Blue Jays are moving Alec Manoa to San Diego, like they'd have to get like Hassan Kim or, or something like that back in the package mm-hmm. as well. So uh, 
that would that, again that's my speculation i'm not reporting that don't want to get radioed on that but uh, that to me makes sense from the way the blue jays operate to sort of have alec manoa plus prospects for one year of Juan soto i can't imagine that happening mm. so I, I think that is the way to sort of look at what's happening and, and the blue jays also they're they're both involved in everything, but they're also all things to all people at this time of year because they're they're so active. They clearly need to do some. Uh, they clearly need to make some moves to leverage the current core that they have, and you can kind of attach them to your your intent. Float out some stuff about them, and people will believe it. So, uh, or at least have to think about it. So that 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 piece of it, the gamesmanship and the subterfuge that's inherent to every off season. I mean, that's a huge dynamic that's at play right now as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would assume so. Right. And I think that there's gotta be a little bit of media literacy with this stuff where you look at it and go, okay, well, yeah, the Jays are the team that's at the forefront of all these rumors. They're the ones that, you know, pass and puts up at the top of his article going, they're the team that's looking to make a splash. Basically everyone has used something big, take a swing, take a splash, whatever, some iteration of that. So of course it makes sense that, they're going to be linked to a lot of different guys. But I, I will tell you that, man, it, it has worked in terms of the market because, like, again, we're leading a Monday show with the Blue Jays, and I, I really do believe that there is just a strong, strong expectation now from the fans that something major is going to get done. So, yeah, that makes sense what you're saying about, hey, uh, how the value uh, – sorry, how the Blue Jays value Manoa. I've, I thought the same thing. Like, it's yeah, it's four years of control, and if it hits, that's awesome. And you would think that that kind of a trade – the bones would be there for a team that's trying to offload money, get a controllable pitcher, take a shot, and then the Blue Jays, like you mentioned, leverage the core. I just, yeah, I, I find it hard to believe that if it's not going to be him or if it's not going to be Tiedemann, how a deal like this gets done considering the rest of the prospects. Anyway, um, BNS did mention that there's four teams asking about Manoa. I'll put it two ways. Are you hearing the same four teams? And at this point, would you say a trade is likely? I don't know that a trade is likely. The ultimately, it, it's, it's going to come down to. I mean, duh, but like, can they get enough of a value on him that it makes sense for them while addressing other needs? Right. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't think they're in this position where they're looking at saying, "Oh, I have to trade Alec Manoa," and but teams will look at sort of what happened last year, the way the season ended and all the questions around that and say, okay, well maybe we can sort of vulture uh, a good asset here. I think the Blue Jays are going to have to guard against that, but the Blue Jays need to figure out where the industry values him relative to how they're valuing him. And then whether a potential return would make sense for them in light of the other things they're trying to accomplish. So, the way that I often think about the Blue Jays in their off seasons, they're, they're always looking at sort of packages of moves. They're not looking at one move in isolation. So it's if you make move X, then you're also going to do Y and Z. And then how does that compare against, uh, you know, R, S, and T? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think that's, again, the way to look at the, the Manoa situation, like, how would that fit into their overall plan? They're not deliberately going to trade him, but they're certainly going to look at it because teams are asking. 
the the only part of this that I don't get is if they view him as the the twenty twenty one version, right? Where they're saying, "Hey, this is uh, this is the picture that we we think we have here in Alec Manoa." Um, why publicly are they saying he's in the running for the fifth starter job? Like that just feels like a there's a there's a pretty big divide between the way that they're trying to shop him versus the way that they spoke about him internally. And so I guess the the real question is how. How do you think the Blue Jays feel about him as of today moving forward? Like, has something materially changed between them, their relationship, and, and the way that his offseason is going? I, I think that, I guess the uh, divergence that you're, you're, trying, you're pointing to there, it, it, to me, it's more similar to how they were talking about Yusei Kikuchi last year, where it was like, you know, we can't guarantee this guy a spot in our rotation, but if you look at everything that's happening around them, mm-hmm. they're sort of doing everything in their power to ensure that there's a spot for him in the rotation. And I would say that's what exists right now for Manoa as well. Now, it's still early enough in the offseason, and the market hasn't moved in, uh, in a major way that if they did trade him and they wanted to still backfill, uh, they could still do that. And so that, you know, part of the discussions around Alec Manoa, they, at a certain point that the opportunity to move him times out because you won't be able to backfill. Mm-hmm. We're not at that point yet. But you can't say, hey, you had a six ERA and were twice optioned last year, but you 100% have a spot in the rotation. I mean, that's not realistic either. But that doesn't mean that you don't believe in the future value. And so, you know, the, the value that you're looking to extract isn't just sort of where a player is in a given moment. It's also what you're expecting in the years to come. And I don't think the Blue Jays or the baseball industry would say one bad year for Alec Manoa uh, right after he broke the 200 inning mark for the first time in his life mm-hmm. is 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 a guarantee that he's never going to be the 2022 guy again. And so that's why the value as opposed to where he sits in terms of opportunity may not sound exactly the same. What's the latest on Shohei? Still deliberating, making his decision. And the Blue Jays remain uh, a in contention, at least based on the stuff that we were hearing uh, as it went to bed last night, waking up this morning. And what is the tipping point? What is the thing that's going to make Shohei decide? That is something that only he and his inner circle, which maybe is as tight as two people, two other people know. And so there's a lot of obviously waiting. There's stasis around the rest of the market because this is the domino that seemingly needs to be, needs to fall for the other pieces to start uh, coming into play, and you know uh, the, the anxious wait continues. It, it does feel like we're getting closer to a decision, though. No, sure. Uh, you know the it, the process does seem to be moving toward its end game. Uh, you know presentations over the weekend uh, in Los Angeles and whether or not, uh, you know, that was the final piece, you know, I mean, again, I'm going to say, I'm going to point out that, you know, the, the circle of information around Shohei Otani is very tight. Mm-hmm. And so no one really knows except for the three people in that circle. But, you know, in, in talking to some people who are 
Otani adjacent. Uh, you know, some people believe that he more or less knows where he wants to go and he's just sort of kicking around the different opportunities to make sure that everything he had in mind already it aligns with what he's seen um, or that, you know, he wants to make sure that all these pieces and fully consider uh, some avenues that he maybe hadn't before. So that's kind of where it's at and how long that takes is that one day or multiple days, you know, one person just said to me, like, everything is very fluid. And that sort of fits the description based on, you know, the, the things that I'm hearing and the way we're seeing. This is just starting to feel a little kawaii-ish to me, where the longer it goes out, the more people are getting hopeful, right? Like, Otani was in town, Kawhi was here, he flew in on the private jet, oh, he's in Yorkville. Where is this guy? He's eating sushi somewhere. He's with this player. And then ultimately he just signs with the LA team in the middle of the night and everybody here is crushed. But yeah, like, is there any way that you're interpreting the, the length that this thing goes? Like if you think, if this goes longer, right, isn't that a good sign for the Blue Jays given that the Dodgers seem like such clear and obvious front runners? You know, again, I'm trying to not, read into the tea leaves based on sort of these emotional uh, emotional reactions, right? And just saying, like, I think that you can talk yourself at this time of year, you can talk yourself into anything. And again, especially I because have. no one has really been, no one has really gotten into Otani's head, yeah. at least in a public way. And so there's just, there's not enough information for us to draw any results from it. And I remember the Kawhi stuff and people talking about like, Oh, well he, he bought this house here. So like you don't buy this house unless you're planning to stay there and he's going to these schools and these schools are really good. But ultimately no one was really in Kawhi's head mm-hmm. and no one is really in Otani's head. Otani may be for someone as well known as he is across the planet, like for the, the least may be known about sort of what he truly wants. Like that's how private he is. And yeah, you know, the degree of privacy that he seeks is reflective in this process, right? Like teams have been told like, you know, if, if stuff gets out that could hurt your chances. Yeah. So everybody's afraid to say anything about him. Yeah. So to try and guess, I, I don't want to do that because ultimately it's, it's just guessing, and ultimately you're guessing it more on your own biases than any real information. Yeah, you know what, though? In my crazy brain, this is why we're a good counterbalance, right? Like, you're going only off the facts that you have, and everything you say is right. But the way I... All I heard from you was when you didn't say, and then you close with that last part of, hey, the... You say something, you let it leak, it'll hurt you. All I heard was, man... Shy doesn't want to say anything because he doesn't want to hurt the Jays. <laughs> he doesn't want to hurt the fan base. He's keeping it. Way to go, Shy. Hey, Shy. Good job. Thank you. Thank you for that. JD, hey, JD that's how stop believing no. what you want to believe. No, I mean, like, that's... ultimately, like, you, you can really talk yourself into anything about this. Yeah, of course. Like, you can really convince yourself. And, you know, like, Ben and I spent a lot of time talking about different mm-hmm. things last night. And, you know, that's the thing we kept saying, like, we need to not fall down the rabbit hole on this because like, you can make in, 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 when there's a vacuum of information, you can make anything make sense. Yeah. And Hey, I, I read a, a piece up on the athletic from last Friday where they detailed Shohei's agent and just who he is and what their modus operandi is. And these are this, this camp 
didn't even talk to the Angels media when he tore his UCL last. He, he just completely disappeared. He wanted privacy from the club that was already paying him heading into this thing. I don't think he's spoken in, I want to say, four or five months. Something, something it's, like that. Yeah, it's a timeline yeah. like that. So, yeah, to believe that all these little micro leaks keep happening, I, I'm with you. I understand it. And, and I think I'm, I'm closer to where you are. I just, I, I think part of being a sports fan, and that's what I'm doing here, not your job of being a journalist and reporter, is just, yeah, you got you to gotta kind of hope on these things because this is sometimes all you get. Um, okay, so scenarios, right? Letting yourself dream on anything. Do you think there's any scenario where the Jays sign Shohei and trade for Soto? Because I would think that one of the chits you could play if you were trying to sign Otani by showing how serious you are would be to trade for Soto and say like, Hey, we're also doing this. Sure. But here's the thing. So if you sign Otani, are you just going to go and start emptying out your farm system? Cause you're going to have presumably a eight to 10 year window with him. Mm-hmm. So you're going to need other players and you're not, you're going to need other players for multiple years, not just one year with one Soto. And so uh, you've got you've got to manage your assets, right? Like you can't you can't go you, you can't fully empty out for a two year period, and then you have a three year gap where you know you're bad because you just don't have nothing around him. So maybe, but I can't see them again. I think the Juan Soto thing is if it's gonna if it's gonna be like six to eight players or whatever has been floated at this point, I, I can't see the Blue Jays there. If it's something more reasonable, if you're talking about, like, you know, maybe Tiedemann and Adam Francis and Isaac Barger, again, not, I'm just pulling that out of yeah, the yeah, air. Yeah. Just, Don't worry, we're not going to um, clip this. Actually, maybe we will. If you do it one more time, if you if you show such right. lack of faith in me, I'm doing it. So don't do it again. <laughs> um, you know, I think though, I think that's that's a different conversation for for one year. But you, you at a certain point, you've got to make not just the one or two years work. You're trying to make the ten years work, and so you know the. I think that what's fascinating to me about this offseason for the Blue Jays is that if if they get Otani, then you're completely changing the path forward. I mean, obviously it's transformational, but you're also changing the path forward because now you're locked into leveraging this iconic player yeah. versus anything else they do will be, in all likelihood, be more uh, short-term and in line with the, the current window of the next two years and doesn't really address what happens beyond 25 and leaves what happens beyond 25 in question. Okay, so the, I'll, I'll close on this. And isn't this the, the major story that it feels like it's being glossed over a little bit is, okay, everybody's pissed off at Shapiro, right? And probably more so Atkins. But isn't the biggest story here that he has been able to convince ownership of putting at least half a billion dollars down on the table for a baseball player? That's obviously a very significant story. I I think the the one thing to keep in mind, too, is that this is really a unicorn free agency. Sure. Right? Like, like you have the opportunity to essentially acquire Babe Ruth. And how that's going to happen, like, once or twice a century? Like that's how unique this is. And, and because of Shohei Otani's marketability that, you know, whether he's an amazing pitcher again or not, 
the investment that you have in him and the interest around him, like you're leveraging this across multiple businesses and it's, it's, it's truly transform transformational, not just like from a baseball perspective, but also from a business perspective. Yeah. So I, I think that's why this deal is unique, right? Like, you know, if Cody Bellinger is going to be in the 250 to $300 million range, I can't see the Blue Jays involved in that, right? Like, that's not – that that wouldn't be a, a Blue Jays type of baseball move. Mm-hmm. But Shohei Otani is, is so unique. So, like, there is an element of this is a unique business opportunity, uh, not just a baseball opportunity, but it is also significant that – the Blue Jays have gotten themselves to the point where they're among the finalists for him, right? Yeah. That is, that is very telling about the, the ability of this franchise to attract players, uh, the, the ability for it to sort of build a sustainable world, the, the ability for it to become, I mean, if, if they do sign them, they're going to be one of the most relevant franchises in baseball for a period of time. Yeah. And you know, that's really significant. Well, and you just have, a player that you're going to be able to market across the country in like he automatically becomes the biggest star in the nation. There's no real polarizing effect of the blue Jays, right? Like some people are Leaf fans, some people are Habs fans. So you can't nationally market Austin Matthews that way. And I know people say the Raptors are Canada's team in that way, but it's, it's not like the blue Jays and even after the championship. And it certainly wouldn't be like considering that the face of their franchise right now is Scotty Barnes compared to Shohei Otani. So yeah, this is just, it's a player that, you know, would be basically exclusively linked to Rogers. It would be massive. You can, you can see the the business link here. Um, I lied. This is the actual last one. Now the last one is if they don't get Shohei, but they is the implication that if they were trading for Soto, it wouldn't be a rental like that. You mentioned it's a unicorn that you're, you're giving all that money to, but do you think that that would extend to a Soto? Because yeah, Bellinger, I don't think anybody would be convinced of that, but Juan Soto is, is not, he's not Shohei, but at least he's closer to that than Cody Bellinger is. Right. Well, there are a couple things to keep in mind with, with Juan Soto. So he's already turned down to believe $440 million extension with the Washington nationals. Yeah. And he's a Scott Boris client and Scott Boris clients almost always go to market. You know, the one accepted exception, mm. a notable exception was, you know, the Red Sox traded Mookie Betts to the Dodgers yeah. and he quickly signed an extension there. But, but that's wanted to be in LA. You kind of gotten, had gotten to where he wanted to get to. So that was almost inherently baked into the deal already. Uh, so I wouldn't think that a, a Soto deal would, a Soto trade would come with the expectation that he's going to extend before he gets to the market. I, I think anybody trading for Juan Soto would go into it expecting him to end up in free agency. Mm. Shy, I appreciate your time. I appreciate the, you know, trying to calm me down a little bit. Didn't work though. It didn't work. Way to keep the secret. Way to keep the secret. I just don't want you. Yeah. I just want you to be prepared for potential heartbreak. If oh, you're gonna, buddy! If, if you're going to talk yourself into, if you're going to convince yourself based on buddy. your your own emotional uh, your emotional reads of the moment. Buddy. That's all I'm saying. Uh, I'm not saying it's not going to happen. I'm not saying it's going to happen. Just saying this is a process that yeah. we can't realistically handicap. Yeah. So yeah. just play it out and you know be excited that they're in it, but mm-hmm. understand that, that 
guarantees you nothing. I think that probably prepares you emotionally for the best outcome. Thanks, buddy. Still trying to teach me. <laughs> uh, often failing, but still yeah. trying. I know. Uh, see you, man. Shai Davidi, senior writer for Sportsnet. Seen, uh, yeah, Shai was a teacher of mine in college. And I think that right there, he's, he's still talking. For you too, son. Yeah. I think he's still talking to me that way sometimes. He's like, I just want you to be prepared for the inevitability of Shohei Otani not signing with the Blues. He's like, yeah, I'm plenty prepared. <laughs> plenty prepared. <laughs> I don't, I, but you, you're not going to my apartment right now. And there's like, welcome show. Hey, banner. <laughs> <laughs> you got balloons already. Yeah, exactly. Those confetti there's, poppers yeah. just ready to go. Got sh- champagne on ice. <laughs> just like, don't worry. It's a lock. He's coming. Here. He's you coming know, home. Do you guys like the Kawhi comparison though? Cause it really is. It really is that way. Like yeah. it's the mercurial guy mm-hmm. who has the tight inner sanctum where the entire world is trying to interpret there's Where so the much wind tea is blowing. Yeah, it's just it's on. all this tea leaf reading. And again, all due respect to some of the people that are posting stuff out there about like who's in and who's out. When guys like Shy are talking about like the inner sanctum and they're down there at the, like winter meetings. And you got to remember where some of these tweets are coming from. Like I get yeah. what he's saying that maybe some people are getting overly excited. I just don't think that's a problem because, okay, it's a problem if you're, a bit of a lunatic and you're like, oh, I'm, I'll never watch the Jays again. If yeah, yeah, they don't yeah. get Shohei, if they get Shohei, then okay. Uh, sure. The fact that they're in on it though, to me should be kind of celebrated in the moment. It's not like a, Oh, you give credit to them. If they fail and they come up with empty this off season and the blue Jays stink next year, like, of course they're going to get criticized for that. But it just, it's, it's nice being one of the hopeful teams in the Shohei Otani sweepstakes. It's nice being able to have conversations with people about the Blue Jays that aren't just, hey, how painful is this? Like, that's where we were at. So this is at least a bit of an uptick. Do I think all that comes back the second we see a ESPN tweet with Shohei and Dodger Blue? Like, of course I do. It ramps up the pressure. And that's why I think it's interesting about, like, the, the, the Juan Soto leaks. So, you know, on this show, I like to interpret where the leaks are coming from, right? Because to me, the Shohei Otani leaks, a lot of them, the people that seem fairly convinced or whatever that aren't Jeff Pass and Shai Davidi, you know, like that that ilk of insider is just take a shot. Who cares? Yeah. Because if you hit, people are going to say that you called it and that you knew something. And if you miss, it doesn't matter because no one was ever talking about you as a baseball insider anyway. And it just kind of goes away. And it's a little bit of a joke on social media every once in a while, right? So the, the risk reward is very, very clear for some of these people. But the Soto leak and the at least buzz around him, where do you think that's coming from? Like, let's just like, play the game. Do you think that's the Blue Jays that would be wanting to raise expectations even further than they are in this market? If I'm the Blue Jays right now, I'm trying to tamp a lot of this down. Like, I like that we're, we're known to be in on the Shohei sweepstakes because that shows that Greatest player in baseball, the the unicorn in free agency, the future Babe Ruth, or the current Babe Ruth, God, it's not future, but like Babe Ruth of the modern day is considering your franchise mm. and that this place is putting up that kind of capital in order to try to bring him here. Now, again, it makes sense that they would do this for this player, not others, and I think you should be able to understand that pretty easily. Like, all of a sudden, Shohei Otani is the face of Rogers marketing in this entire country, right? All of a sudden, the Blue Jays pack a stadium every single night they become one of the most relevant teams in baseball they you know have an international deal people in japan are watching these guys Mm -hmm. uh your merchandise which by the way you get the money for if it's sold in your stadium they're restocking the show hay stuff 
nightly, okay? They always have a printing press inside the Rogers Center making sure that you are getting as much Shohei gear as you could possibly ever dream of. Like, the business decision of this is is clearly significantly different than the Juan Soto thing. So, if you're the Padres, of course you want it out there that, hey, the Yankees aren't matching our crazy trade offer. Like I said, yeah. this, <laughs> if, if you're trying to translate the the request that they have out with the Yankees of Michael King, Drew Thorpe, and four other prospects. Like that is genuinely, like Shai says, emptying the farm system. Yeah. That's, that's the cupboard your, is bare. You're, you're, it, and it's, guess what? This is the other part. It's kind of already bare. Yeah. I bet you they, they basically have one guy that's of interest to every team in baseball and seems to have a consistent value in Ricky Tiedemann. They have Alec Manoa, who, as Shai said, maybe the four teams that are inquiring are trying to pick the bones. They're trying to vulture in. We don't know. Maybe I got to ask BNS this just directly is, hey, what's the interpretation of the value on some of these guys? Or sorry, on this guy particularly in terms of the way that these teams are approaching the Blue Jays? Um, obviously, none of it is a slam dunk or else maybe it would be done already. But yeah, what, what type of return does the rest of Major League Baseball see for a guy like Alec Manoa? This doesn't feel like a bidding war so much as four teams going, we would take them for yeah, cheap. For cheap. <laughs> but if you're the Padres, to get back to it, all you want to do is have it out there so that pressure is up because the number one team, if you're hopeful of landing a big trade package for Juan Soto, getting off the money and getting a bunch of assets back there where the rest of baseball goes, wow, good job, Padres. Hey, even though you gave up a ton to get Soto and you didn't win, you were able to turn them into this. It's the two teams that are currently being played off of each other. Hey, you're both in the American League East. The Yankees, you need somebody that, like they're under pressure too. Who are the top oh, two yeah. teams with pressure? It's not even the Red Sox. Red Sox fired Heim Bloom. They're in the first year of whatever competitive step this is going to be. The expectation is going to be that they ramp it up, but I would feel like next offseason is their one. Yankees, one of the oldest teams, if not the oldest team in baseball massively disappointing season. Yeah, Cashman's doing his weird quotes already all over the place. Like, it seems like... What are you supposed yeah. to be hopeful of if you're a Yankees fan right now? It's not much. You've got a couple of really good pitchers. You're hoping that Michael King ends up, like, being more of what he was at the end of last season. But there is real pressure on the Yankees to make something happen in that market. And there's tons of pressure here. So if you're the Padres, why wouldn't you want to publicly play these two teams off of each other and say, well, you know, you're the front runners now or they're the front runners and they're going back and forth and you never know. It could be this piece because the Yankees aren't in on Shohei. And if the Blue Jays strike out on him, then you know how it's going to get in this market. People are going to start clamoring. People are going to want something and they're going to need that splash. I just think what Shai says is more realistic that as much as the Jays are in on these guys right now, as much as I want to dream about the two guys both coming to Toronto at the same time, I think that, yeah, it's pretty obvious that this is a very likely scenario that they don't end up with either and that they start going down and trying to grab other stars, if you want to call some of them that, some maybe not, from some other teams. Like you're trying to package Alec Manoa up to an organization that wants to get off money, is willing to give you a, a more bona fide player, and that's the way you're going to work. Maybe Ricky Tiedemann is on the table. But, yeah, it's going to be tough. It's going to be really, it's going to be really, 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 really tough on this fan base if they miss out on both. So you understand, again, why the Padres would want to have this out there. That said, I don't think that the Jays are just going to go crazy for Soto if they miss on Shohei. Like, I don't, I don't think that this is going to become a scenario where 
if they see him sign with the Dodgers, that it's like, don't worry, everybody. They're, they're going to get Soto. Like, it's, it's a lock to get him. And that's pretty scary, too, the idea that... And I want Soto, and I don't care. You know, they trade some prospects, and they get killed for this deal. Uh, not me. You're trying to you're trying to win now. You got Vladdy and Bo. Yeah. You you've got George Springer. By the way, big report from Jeff Blair too. I should say is that's the other one that that didn't even make the list of what I wanted to talk to Shy about, which was that I, I don't want to misquote him, but he said it's not a priority. But at least there was some discussion about George Springer's no move clause, which I think has eight teams on his no trade list or something, or eight teams that he can be traded to. That feels like a. That would that be a tough one though if you signed Shohei and then you were like we have George Springer and then we're like actually we're dumping this as the money to get. He's <laughs> like wait 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 you're making the team worse around me. Yeah, I wonder what the scenario is with that one. But anyways, I I love the buzz. I love that people are talking about him. I think that for most fans, everybody's pretty cautiously optimistic, right? Some of some people are going to play this way though. Like the the way that I don't want to play this and the way that I don't understand the point of playing this is if you're a fan and you're seeing these reports. And you have this coming through your, you know, your Twitter feed, whatever. You listen to this podcast, you read articles, blah, 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 blah. Is to just be outwardly pessimistic the entire time. Like, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't, the fact that you were right that they didn't get Shohei Otani is not a feather in your cap. You can't, you can't be at a bar someday having a beer being like, you know, I said I the called Jays it. I knew they get, weren't going to yeah. get them. I said all along. I said from the jump. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I get being a pessimistic sports fan because I've been a pessimistic sports fan. Hey, people, I, I've tried to protect myself too. I've been very, very angry at sports before and I've just darted on hills of being mad. The only thing is, is like, I actually think it's way worse to be the person who's like pessimistic, who's with your friend group, who's like crapping on the potential of it happening. And then all of a sudden something does happen. And then you're, you're the one where everyone gets to point to you and go, Hey, you were the one that said you would never come. And you were the one that said they would never trade for Soto and blah, 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 blah than it is to be the other way. That's just my only thought on that. Otherwise, root however you want to root. If you want to be a pessimist, be a pessimist. I don't care. I got buddies who are that. I've been that. We all have buddies who are that. Some people just don't want to get hurt, you know? See, see, I don't... Lower the, the expectations. See, the way I see that, though, is that those buddies are already so hurt. Oh, yeah. That... 100%. They use the guise of, well, I don't want to get hurt. It's like... You're already shattered. Oh, yeah. You know, your ex-wife lives across the street. (laughs) (laughs) You watch her new man bring the groceries home every single day. You know, he's walking in with the big paper bag and you have to watch the window (laughs) smoking cigs inside. (laughs) You're not a light on in the entire. You are very, very hurt. So, yeah, I'm not buying it. I'm like, but I, I will say that there, I do have moments where I'm like, don't, don't hope. Cause I think I'm the six inside guy too. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> There's parts of me that are that guy too. Uh, all right, let's take a quick break. Did the Leafs have a moral victory this weekend? That's next. Okay, so we now know from insiders like Elliot Friedman that the Leafs tried to grab Zadorov and Chris Tanev. They wanted a package deal, but they wanted Calgary to retain money, and it didn't work out for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Calgary didn't want to retain the cash. Calgary also apparently remains interested on keeping Chris Tanev, potentially re-signing him. 
and that, yeah, Toronto's hunt for help continues. But overall, I, so there, there was this, like, little spin-out moment that I've already gone over about people freaking out about why they didn't grab Zadorov when it was just a third and a fifth, I want to say, for, for Vancouver, and they should have done this, and why didn't they, and tree-living this, and tree-living that. And then they lost to the Boston Bruins. So you would think that the the natural place to be is they, this is why they can't blah, 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 blah. No, no, no. It's actually been a pretty awesome weekend, I think, for the Leafs for the following reasons. It's like, I think that that game against the Bruins was a reminder to people that, hey, Zadorov might be better than three of the defensemen on this team, maybe even more than that, actually. But one of the real positives for this team has been the depth defensemen and how they've come up and filled in and been just absolutely competent. Like, that's the baseline, okay? I'm not going to go full Toronto media here or what people think Toronto media is, which is just completely gassing up terrible players. And I do think that there's been a history of that in this market where, you know, uh, a guy comes up and he has a nice start with the Maple Leafs. Everybody knows his name. And then we get completely out of control with it. But I think this one was so opposite is that no one really knew these dudes. Uh, Connor Timmons people knew. People had high expectations for Connor Timmons. And he had another good game on Saturday. But nobody knew, really, Simone Benoit. They saw him in the preseason, and he looked completely slow and terrible. And they went, wait, this guy's from the Anaheim Ducks? Didn't they suck? And he wasn't on their team? Yeah. Lagason, I, I had no idea where he came from. I still don't. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I always leave Don't talk. care to find out. Don't care. It's great that he's a mystery guy. And these three dudes have actually provided the Toronto Maple Leafs with some depth. I think that they've bought the Leafs some time, and that's a really good thing because if you weren't paying attention, Timothy Lodgren was skating. He's taking shots, and they haven't given a conclusive update on what his timeline is going to be. My guess is that they're going to be hyper, hyper, hyper conservative with him. But these guys have actually bought you a little bit of that time so that you don't have to make a panic trade for a Zadorov, right? If the Leafs' blue line was actually in shambles, I would be saying you, you kind of had to make that move and worry about the cap later because you would have been losing too many games. It's not. It just, it really isn't that way. I've said it once. I'll say it again. They're looking for someone that can slot everybody down because if all of a sudden you have Benoit as your ninth defenseman, I think that you're in a really good position and all of a sudden you feel much, much, much better about heading into the playoffs and potentially sustaining an injury because this is what happens. You, you're probably not going to be healthy. It's hard to rely on a 40-year-old Mark Giordano to be there for you Come the postseason. Hell, look at the minutes that TJ Brody has had to soak up and how there have been a lot of times this season where he hasn't looked like the same guy. And so what you're really hoping for is to at least have some known commodities within your system. And for the Leafs, it's been a team that they haven't been able to hit on dudes from the Marlies or dudes from their farm system for quite some time now. Like a, a better game from Nick Robertson against the Bruins, which is a real positive, but... He'd been a 10-minute-a-night guy who they really had to shelter and absolutely no one should trust to make a play in his own end. Matthew Nyes is a good player. Had a, another good game on Saturday, but the discourse around him had been, hey, ultimately doesn't he end up on the third line? Is this maybe a little bit too soon for him? And the rest of it's like the Bobby McMahon types where you get someone up here and it's like, all right, there's absolutely nothing special about this player. I guess he's an NHL player if you tell me. There's little flashes where it looks all right, but ultimately, like, there's a reason why guys are coming out of the lineup for Ryan Reeves. And there's no forward down, there's no forward down the Marlies that you say, oh, well, this dude's going to challenge them or he should be there come midseason. And I didn't think we felt that way with the blue line either. 
the blue line was very much at the very beginning of the season. These are the guys that the Leafs have, and they're paper thin. And if they have one injury, like the one they have right now, to 40-year-old Mark Giordano, they are screwed. And, and I think that a lot of that anxiety has bled through during the regular season so that when we have seen these injuries and we have seen the names that are on the lockers or on the stalls, people reacted the way that they did. But ultimately, like, you want to talk about the problems with the Maple Leafs right now, their depth defensemen are not one of them, and we really thought it was going to be. One of the biggest problems for them in this recent stretch when they haven't been able to accumulate regular, or I keep saying regular season, regulation wins has been that they weren't getting enough force from Austin Matthews, and he gave them to that Saturday night. Him and his line mates combined for 19 shots in the hockey game. That's pretty damn good for those of you that don't, aren't big stats guys like me. Big old stats guy <laughs> who likes to lay out the big numbers, like how many shots were on a net from a line. 19 shots from those guys, played with force, played with energy, showed up for a big opponent. I know this team drops to the level of their competition sometimes, but they should be given credit for the times that they actually elevate their play and rise to the competition, which was the Bruins and which is the, yeah, the, the standard holder. And what I don't want to hear and why I teased it with the moral victory is I'm not going to talk out of both sides of my mouth. I'm going to be critical sometimes the Leafs when they get the loser point and they go to overtime or they go to a shootout and they get a win and everybody's like crying about it and going, well, this isn't how you're supposed to win and I, I'm with it. There were some people going 6-2-2 two and two, and I think that's too far to one side. But there were a lot of us, and I would say I was closer to this camp, of going like, mm, this 6-2-2 two and two has actually got a lot of red flags involved. So I can't play the same thing and then go, well, they still lost to the Bruins. It's like, yeah, they lost in the same way to the Bruins that everybody was bitching about with the Leafs, which was three on three. That's not going to be there in the postseason. And I really do feel like if the Leafs and the Bruins had continued to play that game out at five on five in an overtime, Toronto was the better team and that they would have won the game. Like, unless it's some crappy goal, you know, wool lets one in. Of course, anything can happen in a hockey game. But if we're doing the deserve to win meter and we're doing that as a predictive model for what the Leafs would have done in that hockey game, I think that they were clearly the stronger team to Boston. They matched up well with those guys. I never, I, I don't think that there were even real long stretches in that game more than a minute or two where I felt like Boston was really controlling the play. I thought that that was Toronto's game, that they were the better team. So to me, it's like, this is it. This is, I'll say it again. This is what is going to buy you time heading to the deadline. This is what is going to reinforce a guy like Brad Tree Living to get a little bit more aggressive in the trade market is if the Toronto Maple Leaf stars try and earn it. If Mitch Marner continues to play the way that he did Saturday night in the game before that where he had the hat trick. If Austin Matthews scores two goals, and that's not going to be every night, but just is firing pucks on net. William Nylander, who some people were really criticizing because of the play in overtime, I get it. It's a boneheaded play. It's not a great one. But ultimately, he led the team in shots in that game, and he was pretty good for someone that everyone... I, by the way, I did notice that the Nylander hate is still kind of there because there was a lot of... I painfully do read comments sometimes. Are you a comment reader? Not all the time. I know it's not good for me, but sometimes you need to sort of check in, especially sure. with the YouTube stuff on the metrics and how it's doing. By the way, if you watch Leafs Talk... For the love of God, subscribe to the podcast and leave a thumbs up. And if you do the same for this podcast, I would really appreciate it. Um, but I did, saw, I did see a lot of people calling him a floater and saying that their educated eye was watching him during the plays and that he wasn't engaged. And I was like, all right, whatever. Some I, stuff bubbling under the surface. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that the line has multiple goals and that many chances if one of the guys is just dogging it yeah, that night. Floating. But anyway, but what, and he did eight shots on net, uh, is completely <laughs> like dogging. I think that's hard to accomplish in the league, but yeah, 
they got some secondary scoring. They got one goal for Max Domi in that game, and it was a big one, but it was an important one. But this continues to be the formula. Play, play tough. Play with some attention to detail, which they did in that game. Play with some consistency throughout the game. Have your stars actually show up with a little bit of oomph, right? An actual engaged group of stars, which they were that night. And you're going to end up with some really good results, which a month or two from now, if this team is going to be in on some right-handed top defenseman, which is what they really, really want, right? The guy that slots everyone down and the price point comes in a little high. You have a GM and a front office that says, you know what? These guys, they're, they're good enough. We believe in this team. Because to me, there have been real moments with this team where I've thought, maybe this is just like 2020. Before the pandemic, when there were rumors of, well, are they going to trade TJ Brody for a second round pick? They lost the Zamboni driver. Should you believe in this team? They've shown flashes of, of a team like that to me. More so than they have what we saw Saturday night, which was a complete team and a complete effort and some like real notable contributions throughout the lineup from their depth. And that's it. If they can continue to be that way, then you can probably start to believe a little bit more in the Maple Leafs, even though, you know, how many times have we all said that? Anyways, <laughs> let's uh, take a quick break. Let's come back and talk to Brady Quinn. I will say, what did I tell you about the Niners? What did I say? I said that it's more likely that the Niners blow out the Eagles than I, you know, than any other result. That Niners team is a wagon. I hate it. Brady Quinn next. So this football weekend sucked, to be honest. I still appreciate it because we only have so many more weeks of football left. I still watched every game. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, the bigger story from the football weekend, actually, well, there's two. There's Niners, Eagles, I'll get there. But first, I got to talk to Brady Quinn about uh, the selection committee choices because, uh, Brady, you are also on the big noon kickoff show on Fox Sports. Pretty famous college football quarterback. What do you think of the four playoff teams? What do you think of the decision? Uh, well, I mean, look, it, it was it was going to be tough for the college football playoff committee to get this one right. Mm -hmm. No matter what their choice was, they were going to make an unprecedented decision. Either you're going to leave out an SEC champion in a one-loss Alabama, or you're going to leave out an undefeated ACC champion, Florida State, who's playing without their starting quarterback, Jordan Travis, who's out for the rest of the season and, and had to play the ACC championship game with the third-string quarterback. So that, amongst many other things that, became unprecedented after the decision was made. Um, you know, they were going to be ticking off one, one fan base one way or another. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I think they got four teams that are much better representations to play for a national championship with where their teams are right now. But I would say everyone's going to be cool about this whole entire process over the course of the last decade. Uh-huh. When they initially came in with the expansion and the idea to have four teams, I've always said since day one, it was never going to be fair. It was never going to be equitable. It was always going to be determined based off a made-for-TV show in the college football playoff selection and then basically a room of 13 people who were going to do what they felt was in the best interest of college football for brands, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I mean – you have five power five conferences up until this point. Next year, that won't be the case. You did up until this point. So to sit there and say, 
Well, if every team and every Power Five champion that goes undefeated, they will get in and play, have a chance to play for national national championship. It's never been the case. Mm-hmm. Like that's never been the case since we started the college football playoff. Yet that lie was sold to college football fans, and now it's finally finally come to fruition. A year before they expanded twelve, where this won't be an issue, or yeah. at least not as big of an issue. So, it, look, Florida State was much more deserving. Are they a better team than Alabama? No. Are they a better team than Georgia at this junction? No. Probably not even Oregon or Ohio State. If we're really being honest with ourselves, their defense stepped up to a degree. I thought Louisville in that game actually did more damage for the ACC reputation than anything else. They looked so awful. And this is coming from a guy who was at the the Big Ten Championship where I got to watch Iowa's offense up close and personal, which was awful. Yeah, I, I actually thought Louisville was worse. Oof, yeah. Do you see the story about the Iowa uh, virtual golf course that was giving out free drinks until they scored? <laughs> <laughs> they were. They, they don't exist anymore. They, 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 yeah, they're gonna have to wait till next. Uh, no. Next, next I just I love those stories because I like picturing the person that had the idea. You know, like I like picturing the dude who's the middle manager and he 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 shot it up the chain and went, "What if we do this? We could create some buzz." And the manager's like, "Yeah, you know what? Let's give that a shot." And then once the game's just going on and on and people keep going up to the, hey, "We're having a great time here," just continuously drinking at the owner's expense, just the the sweat that that middle manager is feeling for having what he thought was going to be his signature idea. I I think that they actually nailed it. Um to me, it was it was perfect except for having Florida State over Georgia because you're right. That just was the one thing, the 5-6. It doesn't really ultimately matter. But I went, okay, well, now that the line of thinking makes a little less sense, uh, I just didn't want to – I don't think any of us wanted to see FSU in the college football playoffs. I think these are the teams that well, no, we all wanted. I mean, Michigan wanted to, J.D. Mich- did you see Michigan's reaction when they found out it was Bama? Dude. I mean, the whole entire room was like, oh. Dude, <laughs> like, that was – Maybe this isn't going to work out for us. They are screwed, okay? If I know anything about... First of all, I saw Nick Saban, his record... I, I'm this, I, I think I have this right. His record against the number one seed, the number one team in college football, is 8-2. and two. Like, I saw that stat this weekend and went, that's one of the most impressive things that I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, that is a case of, oh, okay, like, you're the greatest at this. You, you're the guy for this. Eight and two. Right. So if you're a Michigan fan, you're staring that down. But if I know anything about, like, the vibes of sports, right, um, they were dead for two things. Dave Portnoy basically was crying with multiple videos going like, I'm not bothered by this. This is totally fine. I'm completely happy with this. And I, he's like the face of Michigan football fans. They're toast from that. But that fan reaction in that room, having that get out there, if I'm Alabama, I, I'm like, don't show that actually to the Bama players because then they're going to think that it's a cakewalk because they, they know it. Right. They, they know what's happening. Oof, that was depressing. I think it's interesting. They're a team that's come so far from where they were at the beginning of the season. And, you know, I, you know, I, you, people are going to create whatever argument they want to try to, you know, bash the college football playoff committee. And they're most likely connected to Florida state in some capacity. There's some who aren't. And I think their agenda is more kind of like, well, Hey, this is, you know, this isn't how college football should be. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, if you look at the four teams that are part of this year's college football playoff, they're all in the two bigger conferences. They're, they're going to be at least next year. Mm-hmm. It's two, two, two B big 10 teams and two, two B SEC teams. And that's largely what, where all the talent is, what drives a lot of the ratings, what drives a lot of this. So 
it may be unfortunate for, I think, a lot of folks in college football, in particular for Florida State. And I do feel for the players. Sure. I feel for Jordan Travis mostly. Because Jordan yeah. Travis came out and said, like, hey, I wish I would have gotten injured earlier so this team would have been viewed as a team that's only been held up by its quarterback. Which, look, no one's making that case, by the way. And I feel for him because, obviously, he's a tremendous player. If he was healthy, he would be, they, they would be playing in this for a national yeah. championship. The reality is Florida State had their opportunity in the ACC championship game. Mm-hmm. Had they beat Louisville handily, the 42 to, to 6, or even 35 to 6, they'd be in. Ohio State already did this in 2014, where there was basically an indecision between TCU and Baylor and the Big 12 as to who their one champion was. Mm-hmm. And because the Big 12 couldn't figure it out, the college football playoff left both out. Ohio State jumps in, and they go on to win a national championship. So, I just I feel like Florida State, as much as they want to be upset with the committee about this and they have every right to be, they also had the opportunity in their hands to go out there and win in style. And anyone who tells you style points don't matter is outright lying. Yeah, to but you. they do. We know this. Texas. We know this. We know this. Yeah. Yeah, like I, that's already been established. And I, like I'm a UW fan, and so it was pissing me off all year long that they were undefeated, especially after they beat Oregon and they still weren't in the top four. And I was like, all right, well, what else do you need to do, right? They keep they beat Oregon State, but it was an ugly game, and they kind of squeaked through the end of their schedule. And I went, all right, like this is I get it. Like you, the, the style points matter, so I, I just don't see how any fan could say that. You know, they, they don't think that they do. I did. I will say I felt really bad for Jordan Travis, too. He was like the one guy where I felt sick just because, yeah, it's already devastating to have your season end with an injury and feel like you don't have, uh, you know, that that final say over the way that your season ended, having the injury, all these things. But then to also be kind of sitting in that room as it's announced and it's like it's almost like your fault. Ugh, I was I was sick for him. The only the other takeaway, my biggest one from all of this, because, again, I, I think that they got it right was. 12 teams is too many. Like, they, they, they screwed this up. 12 teams next year, is, it's too many teams. I'm praying that they don't extend this to, the, like, to March Madness because there's been discussion about whether they're going to expand that field. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of like having the discourse throughout the year of who the top teams are. And I think once you go 12 down, like, yuck. I, I think on that point, it's one of the reasons why I've always been an advocate for eight. I was yeah. back when there was a power five conference and you could have your three at large bids, which leaves room for the, the you know, highest ranked group of six team. If you want to throw them in there, I'm also not a fan that anyone deserves a buy, right? Like these are her, these are college football players. This isn't the NFL, right? Mm-hmm. And sit there and say, now we have to deal with, you know, four teams get the buy, the controversy that comes with that. And then we get to host the first round, the home field. Are, are, are all these stadiums able to do that? And I know there's language within it that says, hey, if they can't host it at their home stadium, they can have it at an indoor venue somewhere in that close proximity. I mean, there, there's so many different things. And by the way, that still need to be sorted out. Mm-hmm. They don't have a TV rights deal right now. The president isn't coming in until next summer. I mean, there's a real possibility. Everyone thinks this is going to happen next to the 12-team playoff. And I, I am, I'm, I'm saying it's an chance it's going to happen. There's still a small chance that it couldn't because of all the things that need to get lined up between now and then. But look, as we know, deadlines do deals. And I think as we get closer, they'll figure out the TV portion of this and the economics to it. And the president, the new president will take over for the college football playoff committee. But again, it's it's the perfect number. And especially as we go to an autonomous four, you then have all your conference champs that can represent and your four at large bids. So I'm with you. I, I think 12, they'll, 
there'll obviously be some teams that get in that I don't know how competitive they'll ultimately be when it's all said and done. It just, they're never going to put the genie back in the bottle because the money, it's obviously just about money for 12. But I keep forgetting right. that it is 12 because I always say it's, it is eight. That's how you know it's the perfect number is I'm like, well, next year, I've said this a billion times. I keep going, well, next year it's eight. And everyone corrects me always and says, no, it's 12. And I go, ew, <laughs> it happened again today. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's move on to the NFL. Um, what a statement by the Niners. Just beat up Philly every which way. The beginning of the game, Brock Purdy looked shaky to start it. And I thought, ooh, maybe the moment's a little too big for him. And I was getting ready because I hate the Niners to kind of slander them and go, oh, you guys cried about not having Brock Purdy. But look, this was what the result would have been for this game. And it's like classic Niners. You talk the talk and you didn't walk the walk. And then all of a sudden, they just beat the crap out of them. Six straight scores, domination in the physical game. Um, yeah, I, my read on this is I don't think that this is changing for anybody. Like the, the, the statement is the Niners are by far the best team in the NFL. And if they stay healthy, I, I think they're rolling everybody. I would make the case. Um, and then I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm with you on that. Like it, their health matters who those players are obviously too. It, it matters. The, there's only literally one weak point, And I thought Philly exposed, you know, exposed that early in the game. Like, if you can isolate their cornerbacks one-on-one and you have the type of talent like A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith, and you can consistently just pick at them, pick at them, pick at them, you can, you can win that matchup. Like, you can, you can go score for score with them if the pass rush doesn't get to you and if you have a quarterback who's capable of that. And obviously, you know, those, those uh, DBs made their plays when they did. I, I thought there was a few missed calls in regards to P.I. and defense holding, but, look, officiating has been awful in this year, so we're, I'm not going to blame it on that. I thought the beginning of the game, Philly did a better job of kind of bottling up McCaffrey early. I didn't so much look at it as like Purdy maybe being shaky. I kind of looked at it more as, you know, they didn't have the outside zone running game going and McCaffrey going. And it seemed like eventually what it opened up was they realized we're going to have to like throw the football to run it. And off the play action, off the different formations and movement, Kyle Shanahan went to work and he was giving Brock Purdy layups. How many times did you see guys wide open, whether it was Kittle, whether it was Juwan Jennings, whether it was Debo, just getting their guys with the ball in space, with all the blocking lined up perfectly, or, or a one-on-one matchup where you know, you've got the, favor, the favorable matchup, the wide receiver had leverage, the wide receiver had space and room. All that is the Kyle Shanahan system, the job he does game planning, and you can comb through the film and see it. There's no one else that when they call plays – their offense looks like that. And, and I'm not taking anything away from the players and the talent because mm-hmm. they're talented guys. But, I mean, Juwan Jennings on other rosters probably doesn't have the same success he, we saw last night from him for the 49ers. I mean, you can make the case for probably some of these other players as well. It's just he's different. And Brock Purdy can execute. And, that, I mean, and me saying that's not saying he's a game manager because it's, it's not easy to always go out there and make every throw and make every right decision and go exactly where Kyle wants you to go. But that's what he's doing. So I, I think once Purdy started to turn up a little bit, it just opened up the floodgates. And and not only were they forced to make tackles in space, which they didn't make, mm-hmm. they really never found a way of stopping anything San Francisco presented them. And I think that's, you know, they're the best team in the NFL. I think it's the 49ers yeah. and everyone else. Yeah. Even Kansas City with the way they looked last night. No, yeah. I, I just I think there's a gap between the Niners and everyone because it's just like, you know, the Shanahan thing to me matters. I, I think he's the best coach in the NFL. I think he actually has been for quite some time. And I like, he's okay. He's not Belichick. So I I just want to make that clear as I make this comparison. But it's like, when we talked about the Patriots all those years, it was always like, oh, they have Belichick. 
And I feel like we should be doing that with Shanahan where it's like, this is a major advantage for them. So it's like, I think they have the best coach. I think they have the best left tackle. I think they have the most physical, both like sets of their lines, defensive and offensive lines in football. They've got arguably the best linebacking core. They've got the most physical receivers in football. They might have the best running back in football. Like that's six things I just listed. Like, okay, so they don't have the best corners. Like they don't have the best quarterback, but the guy that I watched on like yesterday night or yesterday afternoon, he was diamond it. He was making plays. He looked great. And you're right. Like some of them are layups, but he made a couple like deep out throws. He made just some, some tough contested ones. But I thought, man, Brock Purdy at least deserves a little bit more credit here. He's not... You know, like he does seem to me like a level above a game manager. And the fact that they hit on it where he doesn't feel like a liability and he now also feels like a plus, woof. I just, yeah, I, I don't know how this gets derailed outside of what happened during their three-game losing streak, which is like they didn't have Trent Williams, they didn't have Debo Samuel. No, yeah, injuries are the biggest thing that could plague them. That maybe just their defense isn't overly as dominant as I think we've seen maybe in the past. I mean, they're good, don't, don't get yeah. me wrong. Um, but no, not having Talanoa Hufunga, who's going to be out for the rest of the season, like, you know, losing that piece, which was a big time chess piece. And I think a playmaker for them in the back end, it, it hurt to a degree. So, you know, they've had guys step up and they will. Um, but this was a statement game. This yeah. is a statement game to the rest of the NFL. And there's other teams that looked really good, but the reality is, you know, they've, to me, since they've got it back healthy, they look the best of anyone in the NFL. Yep. And, and on that point, by the way, McCaffrey, McCaffrey, if we want to have an MVP conversation, let's be real. Because outside of, like, the names that have equity, meaning, like, you know, the Patrick Holmes, the Jalen Hurts guys we've seen have done it. Those guys have not played as well as C.J. Stroud. They've not played as well as Tua Tungabailoa. And the other two names you got to throw in the conversation, uh, and obviously Dak Prescott, is Christian McCaffrey and Tyreek Hill. Like, those should be your five favorites for MVP. And I guarantee you look at the the, the MVP voting odds right now, you probably see Hurts' name higher. You probably see Mahomes' name higher. And maybe you're banking on them coming back and playing well the rest of the season, but that's kind of my issue with the award. Mm-hmm. It's like Tyreek Hill might do something we've never seen before. Christian McCaffrey, his ability out of the backfield, you know, catching the football too, adding to what he does behind that offensive line, makes them special. It makes them that much better. Those guys deserve a lot more credit for where they're at right now. Okay, so I, I agree with you uh, 100%. I just like, I don't, I think if you have a ticket for Hurts at this point, uh, I'm sorry about the record. I know the people who court, quarterback wins that and he's special. He's been solid. Yes, yes, yes. But the Eagles have felt off all year and this result wasn't shocking to anybody. Yeah. Mahomes. It's like that to me should be done. Um, I, I agree that it could be McCaffrey. And the thing that's probably hurting my case here is all the talent that's around Brock Purdy. But I actually think that he should be getting a little bit more credit for this award at this point. Like, here's the Niners quarterbacks since Colin Kaepernick in 2016. Brian Hoyer, C.J. Beathard, Jimmy Garoppolo, Nick Mullins. Uh, then they had another season, like Trey Lance. Like, it's some combination of all of those guys until now in 2023. And it's like, it's always felt like that was the Niners' Achilles heel. And even with Jimmy G, who was close in the Super Bowl or whatever, I never trusted a quarterback on the Niners to bring them back in a football game. I never trusted a guy to actually be able to make a play like they needed it. And I did feel like the Niners kind of needed one. What was it? Was it the second quarter already when, because they had two straight punts. I can't remember. It was the third possession of the game where on a third down, he makes the out play to Ayuk. And I went, dude, he made that play. He made that throw. They needed that one. Um, I just like, if they lose Brock Purdy right now, I don't think that they're winning these football games. Like, I don't think that we're looking at them as the number one team in football. And so to me, it's like, if we're always making this a quarterback award, we should be giving this guy credit. So I actually think for me after yesterday, I have Brock Purdy one, I have Dak two, 
the problem is, is that I'm with you. I have CJ, or sorry, I, I have uh, McCaffrey three. Right. Uh, here's the tough thing is the track record for Kyle Shanahan and quarterbacks is pretty long in regards to them having career best with him. For I mean, sure. whether you want to go back down to his time in Houston, you want to go to Washington, whether it was an offense with RG3, who had offensive rookie of the year, or even Kirk Cousins who excelled there. And Matt Ryan, who got his MVP with him. I mean, you, then you go to San Francisco and a guy like even, okay, back up, Nick Mullins. I mean, the Vikings traded for him because he proved enough worth during his short stint actually playing games to be worthy of a backup and with very little experience. And, and I mean, outside of Trey Lance, who I think struggled to pick up what he was asking to do, which probably because of all that long list of players who have excelled playing, you know, under him, he probably was like, yeah, dude, if you can't get it, I mean, we got to go to someone else because everyone else has. And, and, and I'll stick up for Jimmy G in the sense of this. He played really good football during the course of the regular season. I know when they got in the playoffs, everyone between injuries and then looked at him like, you know, can he help them come back? Can, can he make, you know, certain plays? You know, the, the truth is, is like he was pretty damn good during the course of the regular season. Now, he is not by any means as mobile as Purdy. And I think that's some of the things that you're seeing now in this offense is some of that, you know, mobility and how it's impacted his playmaking ability for this team that they didn't have under Jimmy G. But, I mean, Sam Darnold's there behind. Like, I'm not saying Sam Darnold is going to resurrect his career if Purdy goes down and needs to come in. But I'd love to see it because I'd love to see what he's capable of doing in a Shanahan system with all that talent around him. I mean, I'd love to see a lot of quarterbacks in a Shanahan system with all that talent. So, I, I, I don't know. I mean, at this point, you know, you talk about how he needs to make a big throw. Like, well, the big throw he needs to make is the fourth quarter, not the second quarter. Yeah. Like, Philly was up 6 nothing, and I'm kind of watching going, okay, like, they're not out of this. The first half line was – San Francisco minus one. And I'm thinking, yeah, the 49ers are probably going to come back and be up a half. Like, I just had that feeling about that game. And, again, like, it's just – I don't know that we've really seen Purdy have to bring him back in the situation that you kind of portrayed test. there. And, and, and until we – yeah, until we do, I think that's, like, the only question you have about him. And, by the way, he should be in the MVP conversation. He's played great. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, unfortunately, there's a, a bit of a lull where you go, okay, they didn't have some of the better players, and you kind of see him t- take a hit. Mm-hmm. With, you know, personally with their success as a team and also how you played. Yeah, I just, uh, like, I agree with everything you said. I just don't think that we've punished other quarterbacks in the past the same way. Like, yeah, Tom Brady's Tom Brady, but we never were like, well, he has Bill Belichick and he has Randy Moss. It's like, we're just like, look, it's Tom Brady. He had more of a track record. He deserved it. I get all the reasons, but I feel like there's almost nothing Brock Purdy can do at this point for people just to say, like, damn, this guy's playing really, really well and that there is a real oh, difference. I, I, I'll make the case that, like, Tom Brady fell victim to the Tom Brady effect. Like, how many MVPs did he win over the course of his career? I actually don't know. It probably should have been more. Yeah. I mean, if we're being real, it probably should have been yeah, more. Yeah, but this, that always I mean, happens with the greatest the ones. Team. Well, yeah, and, and like, you make the case for LeBron James, right? Like, mm-hmm. during the course of his NBA career, like, he probably should have won more. Or he should be winning more. I mean, at this point, it's kind of hard to make the case. Brady but, did win five. I mean... Should have been more, probably, but yeah. five is a good number. I thought I mean, it was going to be disrespectful, a like a three. I thought it was going to be lower. I, I did. I, I, as soon as you said it, I went, mm, I feel like we don't bring that up enough. But the, the thing is, is when you have that many Super Bowls, people don't really care about how many MVPs you have. Right. And then that's where it kind of like, kind of gets lost in the whole yeah. point of discussion. But I think what probably the most damning thing is like, look at Tampa without him, look at New England without him. Like look at what those franchises turned into mm-hmm. without him. I mean, completely deteriorated. Totally. And New England may be a little bit, you know, longer burn than what we've seen from Tampa. But, like, you know, he leaves Tampa, he leaves New England, and, like, they aren't anywhere close to what they were before. 
and, and that's kind of like one of those things you look back and go, he won seven Super Bowls, what, went to 10 or whatever it was? Probably, probably could have won 10 MVPs if we're being honest with ourselves with the seasons he would have and the value that he provided those teams. Bro, I just compared uh, Brock Purdy to Tom Brady. So, <laughs> like, we did it. I've gushed about the Niners too much. Uh, what do you think of Big Dom? I, first off, like, I've got a little backstory on him. So, apparently, oh, Big perfect. Dom and Sandro went to school at Penn State. Because okay. uh, I, I work with LeVar Aronson, and LeVar's like, nah, no Big Dom. He's like, I used to see him back in the day, man. Like, because we used to be like, Dom, why don't you play football? And he's like, man, I got classes, I got other things I got to do. So uh, I guess, I guess he kind of told some stories about him today. And uh-huh. just, he's just one of those like cool kind of chill guys that kind of, you know, liked being like, like being the, the protector, if you will. Yeah. And, and that's all I took away from it was, you know, the, the hit and the way it went down obviously was penalized as it should have been. And I didn't think Dom did anything that was necessarily wrong when he's trying to push away San Francisco players from their sideline, it's kind of the job he's tasked with if the officials aren't taking care of the game on the field, which outside the penalty, they really weren't. And that game got pretty scrappy you know, throughout the course of it, especially after that. And so I, I didn't think he was so much in the wrong. I know he's now potentially you know, not able to sit on the sidelines anymore with the way the NFL has handled this. But I thought Greenlaw put his hand up in his face and the gesture he made and really kind of striking him, even though it was softly, if, if anything, it's it's just it's more of a byproduct of the lack of control the officials had in that instance. I didn't I didn't think what Dom was doing was necessarily anything out of the ordinary that he wouldn't normally do in the sideline to help protect his team and all that by trying to break up what was about to be fisticuffs or a fight on the sidelines. But I don't know. I, I love the dude. I I feel like the NFL's really embraced the Italian culture with Devito mm-hmm. uh, for the Giants the, the past few weeks, and then obviously now Big Dom. And I'm sure the notoriety he's going to get from all this. I am heartbroken for Big Dom. <laughs> I didn't know he existed before yesterday, but I'm crushed for the guy. I totally understand Kyle Shanahan's anger, right? Like he loses Dre Greenlaw to in, in this game. And of course he's going to be seething that the other sideline lost their security guard and he lost one of his best defensive players. <laughs> like I, I Dom now, come yeah, on. We don't know how it's going to impact yeah, that has. But I'm, I'm just saying that I, I felt for Kyle Shanahan. I got it as a fellow hothead. I went, I would have reacted the exact same way. I'd be calling for blood. I'd, I'd be, especially if I hated the other team, I'd be furious about it. But I thought, Dom didn't like, I'm with you. I didn't think that he did anything that was like out of the ordinary of sideline behavior. I didn't think that he instigated too much. Like he pushes a little bit back. He's like pointing like, Hey, step back or whatever. He's a protector. He's there to protect. He's not like, if I was thinking if there's anybody on the sideline that is more equipped or should be kind of breaking up the scrums, it, it should be old big Dom. But I saw when they threw him out his face, he wasn't like, and that's how I know that guy rules. That guy wasn't, I'm a big guy who's a, you know, a jerk about it. I'm not someone who starts things. I'm a, I'm a kind of guy who ends things. He looked so sheepish. He looked sad. He looked crushed. Now he might get he taken good. off the sideline. He might, his job is going to change. That was an embarrassing moment for him. Like, I thought maybe Big Dom was going to shed a tear and I almost shed one for him. That was a nightmare for old Big Dom. I'm crushed. I'm crushed for the guy. I'm crushed for, you know, him, his family, people like that, too. Because, yeah. you know, in that instance, you see him walking off the field, they feel like he did something wrong. I didn't feel like he did anything wrong. Agree. You know, I thought he was Free doing big exactly dog. what you'd hope someone with his title would do in that position. And and you could tell, like, he was upset. 
you know, yeah. that he felt like he was just trying to protect his team and, you know, diffuse the situation. And meanwhile, he's got a player that's putting their, their hand in his face and then kind of t- trying to take a swing at him. Yeah. If there weren't people in between, like Greenlaw probably would have struck him a lot harder than he did. Yep. And then he's like, wait a second, like, what do you expect me to do? So, uh, again, this still goes back to the initial point. The officiating in the NFL is an absolute disaster. It's inconsistent. It's awful. There's no control whatsoever if this if games start to get chippy like this. I've said for a long time, I have no idea why the NFL doesn't adopt another official or put more officials on the field. And, and look, Dean Blandino and I go back and forth about this because they don't feel like that's going to help anything. I would make the case that you have more perspective, more, more vantage points on the field. How does it not? And when you go to review a call or, or excuse me, discuss a call before it goes to review to make sure you get that call right. Mm-hmm. And then on top of it, in instances like this, you have more eyes to see what's going on, more eyes to potentially stop something before it starts. And it's like the NFL, this billion upon billion dollar business, doesn't want to invest more in the officiating of these games and the conduct of these games. I just, I don't get it. I never will. It's the one thing to me that's missing this league that could be drastically improved upon. And it's not. And as gambling ekes its way into the league more and more, it's crazy. It's crazy that they don't put more of a precedence on this. Buddy, eeks? We're, we're fully in. <laughs> There's yeah, no we're, more, there. we're no more eking. Like, this is, it's fully here. Yeah, I just, I, I agree with you. I hate officials. And I would have hated Big Dom. Had, had he left the field, like, doing the, like, raise the roof to the crowd, something like that, I would have gone, oh, this guy's a nightmare. He's the type of, you know, like, I hate bouncers, okay? Like, I just feel like most people who become bouncers are the big guy that just... They want to sucker punch somebody, and I don't think Big Dom is that dude. I, I, from my television interpretation of Big Dom, he's like the big sweetie that breaks the stuff up, and then if you really screw over his friend, though, he's going to be there. He's going to be a perfect backup. Like, everybody loves to have a Big Dom in the crew. You'd kill to have a Big Dom in the crew. Uh, okay, I only got time for one more game, and it's got to be the Chiefs. Uh, I don't care about the pass interference stuff. Uh, it was bad. I bet on the Chiefs, so I should be more angry about it. Uh, it cost me so much money. Ugh, I hate you, Chiefs. But my biggest just takeaway from this game is, okay, like Jordan Love looked good, but I don't trust the Chiefs offense anymore. Like, I just don't feel like, oh, don't worry, they're going to get the ball and they're going to score. And like, they throw that interception with about like five, six minutes left. That's one thing. But I just, I, I don't think this thing's coming together, man. Like, I, I'm just, I don't believe in the, the Chiefs effect of bet them when they're down in the fourth quarter anymore. I think it's over. Uh, I'm with you. I think I've become concerned about them having anyone that they can ultimately rely on at the wide receiver position uh, outside of Kelsey. And it's, it's obviously not Mahomes. Um, but even, for example, the, the pick that Mahomes threw up the right sideline when he was trying to target Sky Moore, like that was an instance of, you know, Sky Moore's been there long enough where I think they kind of felt like he was going to take on a bigger role within this offense to replace Tyreek Hill. I mean, he's got that sort of speed, similar size, and, and right, really skill set. And it was one where, you know, he's played long enough where he's got to know he's got to run. Like, he's got to run. Just because the DB is over top of him and maybe he's expecting a back shoulder, it's never going to sell it if you don't threaten that DB with speed. Like, that's the one thing cornerbacks, defensive backs are always concerned about is getting beat deep. And in that position, like, if you're not threatening him downfield and you don't get him to turn his hips or really feel like you're going to try to run past him, a back shoulder is never going to work. Happens all the time down the red zone, the goal line. Like, happens all the time because – why receivers don't sell that route. In this case, you know, I, I thought it was just an instance of that's what they're missing. They're missing 
someone who's got, I mean, look, Tyreek Hill's got his own unique speed and all that, but just someone who's reliable enough in those instances to be able to run the route the way Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid and everyone else there wants him to run it and then be able to make that play. And, and instead you get, you know, an interception and, and, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a microcosm of, I think, what this season's been for Kansas City. And it's frustrating because there's no way to go get help. Like, mm-hmm. there's no one who's going to swoop in the day and save them at this point. There's no one on the street or that's a free agent or that's an older player. It, it's, it's just the men in that room. And so someone over the course of the rest of the regular season through the playoffs is going to have to emerge into that guy, whether it's mm-hmm. uh, Rasheed Rice or whoever they want to point to. Because no one's really become that guy consistently enough. No, nah, man, there's just nothing special. I, I thought when Valdez Scantling didn't get the PI call, I went, "Well, that's too bad because that's your only add, like that's your only value to the team at this point." It's only value. Yeah, it's just because yeah, if you get a perfectly thrown ball, I might yeah, drop it. Yeah, right? yeah, I've seen that. exactly. He can't catch. He doesn't run good routes. He's kind of terrible. You can see Mahomes. I know Mahomes actually does wear his frustration quite a bit sometimes during the games when things aren't going his way, but. I think he's at his wits end with Valdez Scantling. <laughs> just, he looks, he's even after the game, he sided with the refs over him. So I went, oh, okay. He hates this guy. He cannot stand to ever throw no pass to him. Sky Moore. I like, I genuinely don't know how there's not a guy off the street. That's better than him. Like, like there's gotta be somebody that's just sitting around on their couch right now, watching football games. There's guys in the CFL. I know are better than Sky Moore, like a hundred percent unquestionably better than Sky Moore. Rice is fine. Kelsey looks clearly like he's taking a step back. He's absolutely not the same guy. And I like Pacheco, but I don't love Pacheco. Like, I don't feel as though he's one of the best 10 running backs in the NFL. And so I, I just, like, tell me one of those things that's going to change, right? Like, tell me one of those no, guys no, that you can buy stock in zero. Like, there's nothing there. No, and they've hit on so many of their defensive players in the draft. Yeah. It almost makes you kind of, like, forget about the fact that they haven't on offense, at least that position to help out Patch Mahomes. And it's almost been like, well, hey, we built up the offensive line, right? Like we've we've made sure that that group's better to protect him. And he's still got Travis Kelsey. You know, we've, we've paid him and take care of him. Mm-hmm. But they haven't been able to give him the weapons they need while allowing Tyreek Hill to go on and potentially put up, I don't know, 2,100 yards receiving. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like in retrospect, hey, man, like maybe it would have been better off just to pay Tyreek Hill. Like whatever he wanted in that case because – Clearly, he's still having an incredible impact for Miami and for their team's success. And I can only imagine how much it would have elevated the level of everyone else out around him who's catching passes uh, for the Kansas City Chiefs because of all the attention that Tyreek Hill gets. So what's been a great draft and job by the front office on defense, it's been anything but that on offense, at least at the skill position at receiver. And that's now coming to the forefront. But they're fortunate enough they have Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey and an offensive line that's what's one of the better offensive lines mm-hmm. that kind of overshadows uh, some of their misses there. Hey, buddy. Uh, thanks, as always, for making time today. Uh, I appreciate it. And, yeah, keep spreading uh, the love for Big Dom because I think he, he needs it right now. I will. He needs everybody just, you know. I will. The, the, the Paisan passion yeah. is what we call it, Jay. Yeah, it's keeping him in everybody's thoughts and prayers. Thanks, Brady. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, Jimmy. Okay, so I thought that the Brock Purdy – MVP take was going to be a little hotter. Like I was like, oh, I have Brock Purdy in my MVP. And then Simon's like, yeah, Tano has him as the favorite. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Co-favorite, him and Dak. Yeah. yeah. But, but I actually think that that's the, the case. Mm-hmm. I feel like if the Niners run the table, there should be a little bit more Brock Purdy love. And, and okay, this, this shouldn't count. Okay. This shouldn't count. This shouldn't count. This shouldn't count. But I think it at least should be mentioned. Part of the reason that the Niners have all these guys Part of the reason that they have Debo, who just 
truck. Yeah, that was that was a good Debo game. Ayuk, nasty. Every one of them, just like it, just every, like those four guys on their offense. Whenever they're throwing them the ball, you just feel like it's so unfair that they have all four. Yeah. And that and in this day and age where sports are getting softer and softer and softer, this is what I keep saying about the real. Uh, the the real thing you want to do is get people who are physical, get people who are just gamers who love playing sports. I know that sounds obvious, but it's not <laughs> it's somehow not. Yeah, it's it's every sport. Every sport now is like more finesse, and you're like, okay, everybody finessed, and now the power team with the Niners has got big nasty Trent Williams who just destroys people and has four just disgustingly physical, awesome weapons on yeah. offense. Kittle will always have like one catch a game where he just goes through Dude, someone yes. on a run. I know catch. just all of them. It just look like they're awful to tackle. Every single one of them yeah. looks like they're just horrific to tackle. But the reason that they have all these like best left tackle in football, best wide receiving core possibly in football in terms of at least most physical, let's say if not best, because we don't want to, we don't want to harm anybody with their more finesse receivers. It's because Brock Purdy makes $870,000 a year. Yeah. Okay? Like, at least... You can't bring up per dollar in the MVP thing, but you kind of should in this case. Like, they're all here, and they're winning because this $870,000 quarterback can sling it. And, uh, like, all due respect to Brady, uh, uh, Quinn, I mean... uh, this guy's way better than Jimmy G. Like, I am I watched Jimmy G, and I was stoked as a Seahawks fan knowing that they were screwed if they fell behind in football games. Like, mm-hmm. they were definitely not going to come back in football games if Jimmy G was going to be riding for them. That he was going to make some critical error. He was going to make some soft throw over the middle that was going to get picked off. Like, I never trusted Jimmy G. I, I trust Brock Purdy. This, was, this game was a real statement from him of, hey, sure, um, have I proven everything to everybody? Sure. Could I be bigger? Could I be better? Could I be faster? Could I be all the things you want me to be? Absolutely. Am I Lamar? No. Am I Mahomes? No. But if you give me some time in the pocket, I'm going to make the right read. I'm going to make the, and I can make the throw. And that's really all they've ever needed. Mm-hmm. His biggest issue for the MVP is, and I believe this too, is because Sam Darnold is behind him instead of like Trey Lance. People are always going to wonder, because mm, Sam Darnold is just one of those guys where people are like, mm, they've seen a little flashes. Could Sam Darnold? I think it's because he was also a Jets quarterback, so people want to see him have success with another organization <laughs> because everybody loves to dunk and clown on the Jets like no other organization, essentially, in sports. So I think there's a bit of that. The feeling of Darnold has always been a little close. He was in training camp, and people were impressed by him, and Birdie had that injury, and people wanted to see what he would look like in this offense and if he could unlock something higher. And I just I don't think he would. Uh, I think he would be fine, but I don't think that he would be better than Brock Purdy. I can't believe, Nick, you wore your Eagles hat in today. Like That's dedication. Did you lose a bet? <laughs> like, are, you're, just, you're just one of those, like, horrific Philly fans. It's like, and then, you know, they're a bunch of cheaters. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's because I got to say, Nick, this was so embarrassing for the Eagles because... Like you have AJ Brown out there going, I give everyone permission to troll Debo, and then Debo just kicks his ass up and down the football field. Your coach got completely destroyed. Your defense was laughable. You got no pass rush the entire game. Your linebackers terrible. Um, like it, you guys sucked. <laughs> you sucked in that game. They, the, your rival. They told you for like basically conclusively that the only reason you went to the Super Bowl last year was because Brock Purdy got hurt. And yet you wore your toque in here today. Like, 
E-N-G. So, J.D., think about this for just one second, and none of you guys are bringing this up. Okay. This team is coming off probably the hardest five games <laughs> this year. Oh. And no team has faced a five game stretch like this. No team has faced a five game stretch. It's harder for us to play. You guys got your asses kicked. You could have had the <laughs> easiest five games in football, and the Niners would have whacked you. The only positive, again, you got out of this game was that we learned about Big Dom. And Dumb. then now he's gone from the sideline, which is absolutely going to crush the vibe of your team. And like, ugh, you guys have you guys have the easily most hateable coach in football right now. Like, there's just no question, right? Does anybody root for Nick Sirianni? Sirianni? Yeah. No, yeah. you guys aren't with me on this. I mean, I personally, I think hate that, him. I personally think that Dennis Allen is the most hateable oh, yeah, yeah, coach. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Anyway, nobody watched your game. <laughs> <laughs> no, they didn't. Nobody watched your game. God. Like your team stinks. The Saints. <sighs> I would say it. So I, I had money on the Bucks because, of course, I. It was a line that was a low two hundred yeah. against the Carolina Panthers. Panthers actually gave me a bit of a scare. Like oh. they had a fourth down play, fourth and six, and uh, Jark went down the sideline and caught one. And I went, as if this is going to happen to me, as if I'm going to lose to Bryce Young. Uh, didn't end up happening. But your division is like, this was the weekend for the NFC South. Um, barely beat the Jets. Oh, yeah. Trevor Simeon, like, squeaked by for yeah. the Falcons. Just barely. Down 2 ba- nothing early. Couldn't do <laughs> anything. Arthur Smith, the offensive genius. Yeah. The offensive genius, Arthur Smith. Uh, one touchdown against the New York Jets. Couldn't move the ball all game long. Continue to put his team in threat. Saints, oh. Offense just booed off the field routinely. Offense booed off the field. Uh, just really nothing positive to say. No, about. there is something positive to say. What? Derek Carr got hurt. No, but that's what I mean. You guys are the worst fans now, too. It's like you root against Derek Carr. You root for his injuries, and you want him to play over. I, I want to make something clear. I'm not rooting against David Carr. Yeah. I'm rooting for Jameis. Yeah. Let's just yeah. get wild. Anyway, yeah. No, but that's it. It's just like you guys suck. You're so irrelevant. And then that game, the the Bucks panthers game, it was like there was only three football games on, and that's the only reason that I clocked enough yeah. of it. But who could ever want to watch this? And the thing is, too, is like you look at all these teams and it's like, well, the hope, none of them, none of them have any hope. One They're, of them will be in the playoffs. No, yeah, I know. Shocking. But, but even going horrible. into next year, I'm saying, oh, yeah. what's the team that you're buying stock in out of that entire group? None of them. They all look horrific. Relegate so, yeah, the division. I hate that. Oh, one last football thought I have that I really wanted to get off my chest. Steelers cost me Cowards Parlay. It's fine. Steelers have actually won for me the last couple of weeks, but I hate, like, I, I don't have any respect for the Indianapolis Colts and I haven't talked about them whatsoever, but they won another game. Gardner Minshew went down the field in overtime, two block punts. You know, it's the Titans, right? They're playing the Titans. Like they don't deserve a ton of credit for this game, but I don't, this is where branding matters so much is we have done all this, like, the Steelers find ways to win football games, and maybe there's something to Kenny Pickett, and it's all Matt Canada's fault, and all the Steelers, all their gamers, all their tough team, they're well-coached. And Tomlin's squad lost to a team from the desert in the rain. Like, if you pictured, oh, do you know what? I had the Niners in the original Cowards Parlay, and I swapped them out for what I thought was the more conservative pick in the Steelers because I saw the weather report. And I went, are you kidding the team from Arizona, this is Steeler football, baby. These guys are... Football weather. They suck. Steelers are so bad. Oh, yeah. And, like, sure, Kenny Pickett got hurt. Oh, like, 
he stinks. Mm-hmm. The Steelers stink. They get talked about way too much because they fluked out and won all these football games. You're reaping what you sow, Steelers fans. Your team is terrible. Your coach is overrated. Your defense sucks. Like, I don't know. There's not a one redeemable quality. It's like you can run the football kind of. I can't wait for them to pay Jalen Warren, and then he's going to turn into, like, <laughs> worst version of Tony Pollard 2.0 where people are like, what happened to him this year? There's there's no reason to be optimistic. They should obviously move on from Kenny Pickett. They're terrible, and the Colts actually deserve the respect that the Steelers are getting this year. Their coach has done a better job. They've done more with less. Their offense actually moved the chains. They got Gardner Minshew back there. He looks a million times better than Kenny Pickett has ever looked Mm -hmm. in his career outside of the preseason. He's done it with no wide receivers. They did it without their star running back. Their defense actually finds ways to make real plays and win football games. And yeah, I'm just tired of the whole like, well, the Steelers are hanging around. And like, then we don't ever talk about the Colts. So yeah, Colts stock up, Steelers stock down. Let's take a break and hit what we missed. All right, Simon Douglas, what did we miss? LeBron versus Ime Adoka. Oh, yeah. Things got a little spicy. It was, uh, yeah, Rockets, Lakers, Saturday night. Lakers win by 10, but really all people were talking about afterwards was LeBron getting into it with Ime Adoka. Clearly they were were talking some junk. They both got texts. Ime got kicked out. What are your thoughts on this whole thing? First of all, this should have actually been more of the conversation than Big Dom over the weekend of like a coach saying something to a player like yeah. that. Yeah. So let me I, say. I can't think. I don't know if I've ever seen something like that before. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. It also can't looks like may wanted to square him up. <laughs> so so I have two thoughts on this. One is that Ime was wrong. He crossed the line. And you like to say that to LeBron is just it's wrong. It's It's disrespectful. It's the audio has leaked the, there too. Yeah, you can just, find yeah, exactly. out. If exactly. You, if you want happens. to hear what he says, like in the the word he calls him, it's like, no, nah, it's not good. Like, I, I think that a coach should be more respectful of one of the greatest players of all time. And it's like, it was a bit much and he deserved to get tossed. But also <laughs> two things can be true. I, it made me immediately sad that the Raptors didn't get Emeo Doka. I know like he's tough as nails yeah. and he's completely unafraid and it's like, if he's talking like that to LeBron, you think he's afraid to say something to Scotty Barnes? <laughs> you know, like, hey, and I think Darko has done a good job here. Like, the team is yes. moving the ball. They're playing yep. a lot of the young guys. He's doing the best we can. He's a big sweetie pie. They went from... A big like, sweet they, boy. You know, they went from Nick Nurse, hard-ass guy, to sweetie pie guy. And <laughs> I just prefer the that. Like, I, that's just my personal preference is I prefer the kind of coach that would call LeBron that and then say, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, and try to fight him in, and, in a game. And not look at all like, you know, he's not a shook one. He no. was very... What you going to do about it, soft boy? <laughs> yeah, that's it. What are you going to do about soft... Like, wow! So, like, on the one hand, I'm appalled by his behavior. Yeah. Of course. But on the other, I kind of think he's a badass. He's pretty cool, and I would love to have him as my coach, that's for sure. So, anyway, those are my thoughts on it. What, uh, any other coaches across the big four sports that you think would be good in a fight? Oh, across the big four Because the, the first guy that I thought of was just because of the crazy gene, Dan Campbell. Oh, yeah, no, Dan big Campbell. Big boy, who's absolutely oh, nuts. God. <laughs> Except, and the, the part is, too, Dan Campbell would be... He'd be strangling. He'd be like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Because he's such a nice guy. He'd be so emotional after in his post-game murdering you press conference. <laughs> he's a good kid. You know, I didn't want to have to do it. I just, I did what I had to do. But here, with the lines. <laughs> 
No, yeah. No, Dan Campbell, I like I don't even need to think about it. He would yeah. be hundred percent the number one choice that you yeah. would have to choose across the four major sports. If you needed like Game of Thrones a champion to represent yeah, you in a fight. Exactly. It would be Dan Campbell. Like I choose Dan no Campbell question. to represent me in combat. Yeah, I would. I don't need to <laughs> overthink this. What's next? Uh, a little screen, cra- screen grab from the Saints game came across of someone who seemingly named their daughter after Taysom Hill. Uh, put this in the chat. So That's a extreme. Yeah, it says, Taysom, I named my daughter Taysom. Now, she seems to name have named her daughter T-A-E-S-Y-M, which... Um, mm. Just you, making your kid's life It's just a thing. choice, yeah. Like, you know, look, I, I'm not here to yeah, judge but people. South. But <laughs> good point. You're like, yeah, it's all right. Would you ever name a child after an athlete? And if so, what athlete? This is an easy answer. Ooh. Santa Sosa Lynch. I would name my son Shaq. No. <laughs> Carmelo. <laughs> no, yeah. Dude, you know how sick Shaquille Bunkers is? <laughs> Shaquille Bunkers. does have a ring to no, it. does no, have a certain... Yeah, it does. But it's a little je ne sais quoi. No. Uh, it, I actually did at one point think, like, a cool daughter name would be Peyton. Oh, nice. Okay. Like... Hey, Peyton, and spell it like Gary Peyton, and have that be a nod and homage. Nice. I don't know how you'd get away with that though, with a, a lady, and you know, just being like, I liked this basketball player. You when have I was to a baby. pitch it and not mention the yeah. basketball tie-in. I think. I think just you gotta lie. Go. And I think that's just like your whole life. Look, you'd be you, like, if you really want, I had a great aunt, Peyton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she she was a matriarch. Yeah. yeah. Like no, I don't think that works. Uh, the only problem is people would think like it was after Peyton Manning, Manning but yeah. Yeah, that's why you have to spell or it. Sean Peyton. You know, yeah. Oh no, not that one. No. <laughs> I named not my daughter after one. Sean Peyton. Not that one. Uh, by the way, last thing too, little the Broncos. They came back. They were almost it. They almost did it. And I thought if they throw that pass, everyone is just losing their minds about Russell Wilson and Sean Payton and their ability to stay in games because they were getting blown out and they found a way back in. That plucky, was the plucky Broncos. Lost story. They stayed plucky. Yeah. Anyway, uh, subscribe to this podcast. Leave five stars. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at JD Bunkus. And we'll see you tomorrow.